If you have a Bible this morning, let's go right to the message. Let's turn 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to talk about something that has been on my heart. It's one of those sermons you have a title for that you set aside. You're not sure what to do with it yet. And then you have a conversation with somebody and it inspires that title to come back into play. And then God adds meat to it. Somebody asked me once, how do you get sermons? And quite frankly, I don't know. I think a thought. I read something you know, in the morning and it follows me all day long. I go to the office. I write the thought down. And sometimes God begins throughout the rest of the day or the morning or the reading. A thought comes here, a thought there. Next thing you know, it's something there that I believe the Lord wants me to say. And it's not always something that's pleasant for everybody to hear. But I don't think we came here this morning. I hope we never come here to be entertained and to just enjoy hearing somebody speak. I hope we all come here with the idea that we have a need And our need is to be drawn closer to the Lord because that is a fulfilling life. The Bible says you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And it cannot be better than that. And there's many parts of how to draw near. So you preachers that are taking notes, there's your sermon right there to start on. How to draw near to God or the benefits of drawing near to God. The psalmist said this. He said, whoso offereth praise glorifies God. If you want to glorify God, he says, offer praise. That's something you're willing to do, something that you do. You praise the best way you know how with the words you have. From your heart, you praise God. He said, whoso offers praise glorifies me. The second part of that verse in Psalm 50 says, and whoso ordereth praise. His conversation aright, God says, I will show him my salvation. Just like he said in Psalm 90. You do this and you do that. And God says, and with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. It's as though God has something that is so beyond us and so above us. That only as he raises us up and lifts us up or as we are brought up there do we ever realize what really belongs to us. What God really has for us in life. And the next life, salvation. And the word salvation, as some of you know, is a word that encompasses so much of our life. Your health, your tomorrows, your safety, your preservation, your eternal security. There's so much involved in the word salvation that so many people live way below. But God says, I will show you my salvation. Your eyes will be open. You will begin to see why people are joyful. Why people want more of this because I will show you what you get. And all you have to do is seek it with your whole heart and pursue it. And it's your father's good pleasure to give it all to you. We call it salvation. For most people, it's just a word meaning that you got saved or got baptized. But for a Christian, it is all that life encompasses as God gives it to us, especially deliverance from and help through and and protection and so forth. But he said, 
Whoso ordereth his conversation aright, God says, I will show that person the salvation. Now, I want that. I'm sure you do. I hope you do. Because you see, the word conversation in the Bible doesn't mean talk. Like the English word conversation means communication back and forth with words. It's verbally talking with each other, but not in the Bible. In the Bible, it has to do with your life, how you live, how you conduct your affairs, and it all comes down to the choices you make. But everybody makes choices. Everybody lives a certain way. I don't care what church you go to. I don't care how many years you've been in church. You still live the way you want to. If you really want to please God, you'll live his way. If you're satisfied with the little bit you got and the rest of it's yours, you'll live that way. But that's your conversation. That's your behavior. We call it conduct. That's how you conduct your life, how you conduct your affairs. It's how you live. It's how you're known. How you live is how I know you. I don't care what you say. You can tell me who you sat under and how many tapes and how many missionaries. You can tell me all the glowing reports. Your resume may be full of fine things. But if your life doesn't measure up to that, that's really who you are. That's who you really, really are. If you're a religious person but a conniving, shrewd, clever, stealing, taking advantage, intimidating person, that's who you are. I don't care what you heard. That's who you are because that's the way you live. That's how you're known. That's how we see each other, and it's honest. Because the title of the message today, as we'll get here in 1 Peter chapter 2, is the honest conversation. Let's read verse 11 and verse 12. He said, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation or your manner of life honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall see or shall behold, they shall glorify God in the day of visitation. Right away we realize that our citizenship is not on this earth. We live here. We live in Kentucky or we live in some state. But in the bigger picture, belonging to God, being a part of his kingdom, the greater kingdom, we're considered to be sojourners and pilgrims on this earth. That's why it would be hard for me to be a politician, one who is in God's kingdom serving him, but yet on this earth trying to serve unregenerate people in an unregenerate government. And I couldn't do that, and neither can anybody else. But he said, while you're in this world, with all of its attractions and all of its allurements, you have to be careful what you're inclined towards or what draws you this way, or what philosophy of life governs your thinking. Everything, every kind of lust. It can be a lust for things. It can be a lust to be. It can be a lust to be considered. But people pursue something. But the Bible said this. Now, get this in verse 11. He said, there are things that war against your soul. You only have one. You only have it for a brief period of time. But there is a war. While we're sitting here this morning, 
in your life, where you live, with what you're doing, there is a war against and for your soul. Now, all we can do and all God will do is warn you. The Spirit of God will open your eyes and make you aware of the fact that the life you're living is not acceptable to God. I don't care where you go to church. I know you got a new Bible, and I know you read it, and I know you're getting up early, and I know you go to this, and you're helping there, and you're giving there. But if you're not living this, if you're not living the life, it really isn't doing you any good. Jesus would say to a lot of people who did a lot of things, I never knew you, because the actions of a person's life speaks much louder than his sermons and his testimony. It's how we live that's going to determine it all. In fact, in verse 12, he said, having your manner of life honest among the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles here for us would be the world, the people outside of these walls to which we are told that, especially if we want to lead, you're to be blameless. Oh, they're going to speak of you as evildoers. The world is inclined to do that. They want to find fault with us. They want to find you in a mistake. They want to see you fail in some way so they can say all of us are like that. Yeah, that church bunch, all they want is money, you know, and all they're crying about this, and they won't pay their bills, and their kids are awful. And that's what they say. It doesn't mean it's true. It might mean it's true for somebody. They got that somewhere. But they're going to say that, and they're going to put us all in the same box. So he said, you live an honest life. And the only possible definition of an honest life is one that's in harmony with what the Bible says. If we don't know what the Bible says, if we don't learn what God has to say in his word, how can we live anything? So an honest man who wants to live an honest life has to know the honest truth. Isn't that right? And look at how many things tug against you to distract you from this or to keep you home. Look how many things you in your lifetime have kept you from learning the truth. Something that comes up and takes away your opportunity to attend church. Or you're so whatever and upset about something yesterday that you can't think about what's going on this morning. Think of how many ways the war against your soul is being waged. And then that little voice that comes up and says, oh, this is, this is just church. It's not a big deal. This is not your life. This is not what it's all about. He doesn't know what he's talking about. How many times do you hear stuff like that? Oh, he's out of touch. And I'm sure there's a lot of things in this world, this communications world, I am out of touch. I'll admit that. I'm not sure I want to be in touch. But what they're talking about is you're not up to date with the way the real world is working. I mean, things have changed. You would need to change with it. You're still back in yesteryear. And so when the devil whispers stuff like that in your ear and makes you wonder, if you're not grounded and settled, those things begin to make sense and you begin to change. And when you begin to change, your behavior changes because your mind changes, your way of life changes. If your mind is not governed now by the word and a conviction about what is being said, something or somebody will talk you out of it. Your parents will, a teacher will, your friends will, the educational system will. 
You will be so desirous to be accepted by everybody that you'll change whatever so that you'll be accepted and not be viewed as a religious geek or idiot or something. Anyway, we can avoid persecution. The devil's always talking to you. Hey, take advantage of what you got. Do what you can. You always got time for God. You do that anytime. Listen to me. I've been here too many years. I've been living too many years, so no different. People who think like that live like that. They're hard sometimes to preach to because they've already let themselves be talked out of something. You can see it in them. You can see it in how they raise their children. You can see it in the whole attitude of society today. Everybody is trying to power down. There's a fear. There's anger. I don't know. Frustration. We're not coming where we should be because we've allowed people to power us down. So people do drugs, get drunk, run around looking for something. The something you're looking for is in that old-fashioned church that you were talked out of. It's the Word of God. The life that God gives, a manner of life or conversation that is heavenly and holy. And yet somebody, something convinced you that that's not for me. I can't do that. I'm not sure about all of that. Everything we do, every way you make a choice, every choice you make and the way you make it is a reflection of how you really feel about Jesus Christ. As a Christian, everything in your life indicates, by the way you choose, the way you act, is an indication of how you really feel about Jesus. You might say, oh, no, I love Jesus. No, you don't. Not when you don't follow him. You don't. You have lofty goals and aspirations. I praise the Lord for that. Those are good words. But if your life is not consistent with those lofty aspirations, you really don't believe it. And consequently, you're a religious person. I don't think you're a bad person, but you're not necessarily a good person either. It's hard to say all of that sometimes, but that's the way it is. Everything you do is a reflection of what's important to you. Everything about you tells me about you. I can tell by the way you dress. I can tell by your attitude. I can tell by the way you act and especially the way you react what kind of person you are or where you are as a Christian. And I'm not saying that all of us are perfect yet. You know, you're a parent at a ball game and you're yelling at the umpire and hollering real loud and making a scene. There's a problem in your life. You have to agree to that. Many years ago, I don't I say many, I make her feel old, but Sarah was playing basketball at Eastern, and Bonnie and I went down to Eastern to watch Moorhead play Eastern. But anyway, we went over there, and she was playing, and of course, I didn't like the officiating. So I'm sitting up there on the rail while I finally let go with one or two of them. Oh, and Bonnie says, Tom, well, How many of you believe this morning that thing is in me shouldn't be in me? Been laying there all the time. All them church services, a thousand sermons, that thing was hiding in there waiting his turn. There he was. There's Brother Tom. But after she said it, 
If you get married, you can overcome better. <laughs> Boy, don't let me explain that one. But anyway, after she said it, I thought about it. That wasn't, that wasn't acceptable. You shouldn't say that. And I haven't since. But I grew up in a basketball gymnasium. And I grew up watching the mechanics of the game and the fundamentals. I still understand it and I still know it today. It's just hard to accept whatever as whatever to me. <laughs> That's not right. That's not, hey, that type of thing. And when I was coaching, it was like that. There's something in some people that demands doing it right. Now, if you give that up for, as a parent that demands doing it right, when you no longer demand of your children that they do what you want them to do the way you want them to do it, you let them do whatever they want to do the way they want to do it, and they're going to have a hard time in life. Trust me. They really will. But you taught them because... That's the way you are. That's the way you are. I want to put two verses of scripture together this morning. Turn to James 3.13 and Titus chapter 1 and verse 16. James chapter 3 and verse 13. Would you look at that first? In James 3 and verse 13, he says... Like this. Who is a wise man and intelligent or endued with knowledge? Who is a wise and enlightened man among you? Now I could ask this morning, everybody would hold their hand up. Who in this room is a wise, uh oh, well, anyway, an enlightened person? There's nobody in this room that is dumb and ignorant in, you know, in the sense of can't function. Everybody in here can. I don't know that we're all wise. I hope we are. But the two words are connected. In order to be wise, there must be knowledge of what to be wise about. Are you with me? No man can have wisdom unless he has forethought. He has been trained or taught before about something that he now knows how to deal with something. The man who built his house upon the rock had obviously knowledge of the fact that all houses will be assaulted by the weather. Obviously, the story. So, if my house is going to last and be worth the time and effort of building it and be substantial, then I need to get it on a good, solid foundation, which is the rock, of course. So he took the time to dig down and find the rock. Now, Jesus said this about that type of man. He says, a wise man knows that if he needs to do something, he needs to do it right. In this case, build it on the rock. But he said, a foolish man doesn't think like that. He's for right now, what he can get right now, you know, what counts right now. And he doesn't take time to think about the consequences of not doing something right. He's a foolish man. So he says to us, who is a wise man amongst you and endued with knowledge? If you're one of those that has both of those, here's what you do. And this is how we will know that that's true of you. 
Let him show out of the good manner of life his works with meekness of wisdom. Would it be true then that when a man knows the right thing to do, it may be not what others would do, maybe not what he would have done before time, but he knows what's right to do. God said do it this way. So he does it that way. That's wisdom. Would that humble you? You know people are going to find fault with your choices, but you know the right choice is God's choice. And if you make that choice, you're a wise person. May not look like it now, but you're a wise person. You're doing what God wants. Listen to another couple of translations. Remember that about the meekness of wisdom. One translation, the today's Christian New Testament. I don't endorse these. I just have access to them. Who is a wise man to do with knowledge? said, let him show that his actions are the outcome of a good life lived in the humility of true wisdom. Okay. That's an advanced, dedicated life there. Here's another one. Here's a World English Bible. Let him show by his good conduct that his deeds are done in gentleness of wisdom. Well, wisdom is a game changer. But you've got to have knowledge. You're not wise unless you know something right. And what you know that's right, you're not wise unless you do it. But if you do it, it will change the way you look at life and the way you live and the way you conduct your affairs. Young's literal translation. It's just a Greek literal translation of the Bible. And he says this. Who is a wise man to do with knowledge? Let him show out of the good behavior his works in meekness of wisdom. So this is the picture one I want you to see. That the gaining of knowledge, the learning of true facts, and the putting those facts to practice by doing them makes you and evidences you as a wise man who knows what God wants. And when you do this, you'll do it not in some arrogant, puffed up, whoa, me, but in some humble, meek, gentle way. Now, on the other hand, in contrast to that, in Titus, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 16, this is the opposite of that. He said, they profess to know God, but in what they do or their manner of conversation, their manner of life, what they do denies him, their works. They profess, they say the right things. I know the Lord and quote the Bible. I don't know how many times in my life in casual conversations with people, don't want to try to overwhelm anybody with the gospel, but just a conversation. I remember once with an assistant basketball coach, just just easing into a gentle conversation, non-offensive. I remember one of the first things he said when I brought up Christianity on a personal level. He said, man, I went to church all my life. Yeah, I know the Bible. Oh, yeah, I can, I can still quote it. I know the stories. I wonder how many people think that's what it's all about. I've been to church. I went to Sunday school. Got my stars, pins. I've quoted it right. I remember things in the Bible. I've sung all the hymns. Amen. I know all of it. Amen. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wonder how many people are thinking, that's your salvation? That means you're saved? 
That means you're there, you've arrived. What if the way you live, that vulgar mouth of yours, that carrying on and drinking and carousing, that cheating and robbing and lying and stealing, what about all of that, Mr. Go to church and read the Bible and teach Sunday school class? What about all those other things you do? You think that you do more good than you do bad, therefore most of you will be saved and some of you won't be? You really think that going to church changes your heart? Because it's out of the heart. Proverbs says the issues of life come out of your heart. Mark chapter 6, Jesus said, out of the heart comes things like fornication, adultery, lying, stealing, cheating, and meanness, and all of that comes out of your heart. The Christian who is convicted of road rage is not a Christian. Oh, he's, he knows things, but he doesn't understand things. He has no wisdom. And he lives by his feelings, and he curses, and he carouses, and he's nasty. But, oh, well, let me read it again, because I'm not talking this morning about non-church people. I'm talking about us, us. He said, listen, I'm not talking about anybody either. I haven't heard a thing, so I'm just addressing this because I know it's true in the world, in the church world, and I hope it's not true here, but if it is, let the chips fall. He said, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, and three things are said about them. He said, first of all, they are abominable. Another translation says they are detestable. To God, they are detestable. It's a word for despised. And then he says that they are disobedient. That's our word faith backwards. That means they are unwilling to be persuaded to live this way. They're willing to listen. They're willing to sit there and participate in the system. Be a part of it. But they're unwilling to make their life an example of all that. So they are, he said, disobedient. And he said, unto every good work, think of this now, and unto every good work, they are adokamas. They are rejected. They've been put to the test and found failing. They're rejected. Just like a company may produce a product, test the product, it failed, therefore they won't sell that product because they can't back it. But a product that passed the test, I always use the tire companies because they seem to go at length with this. They drive them a million miles and run them over rocks and this and that, and they do this and do that. And there it is, it's still pumped up, you ought to buy it because it's proven. That's the word that describes us as Christians who once we have passed the test and are proven, we shall receive the crown of life. Once we have become and proven through the tests and trials of life that we really mean business and we're really sincere and serious about God, then we are approved. We have been found proven. Read it again. Titus 1, he says, they confess, they profess, they say that they know God, that they have knowledge of God. But in works, 
in conversation, they deny him being abominable and disobedient and unapproved. That's a serious verse of scripture, and it's in a context of the church. Titus wasn't writing to outsiders. Outsiders would have no interest in this, but he wrote this to the church, to those who are in the church. Now go to Philippians. You're not far from Philippians. Go back to your left, two or three books, and you'll find Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, this is the way it ought to be. This is the way it should be. This is where we should build our nest. Verse 27, concerning our topic today of honest conversation. Philippians 1 and verse 27. Only let your conversation, again, your manner of life, your conduct, your behavior, the way you act and live, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That is, as it is ordered by and in harmony with the gospel. Let me ask you all a question. Have you heard the gospel? Do you believe it's true? Are you convinced that it's the only right way there is? Are you convinced that if any man speak not according to this word, this gospel, that he has no light? He may have good thoughts and good saying, but it's all darkness. And people love darkness. Jesus said they love darkness more than light. He says in that 27th verse, let your manner of life be as it is in harmony with and aligned with the gospel. If you've never heard it, you couldn't do that. It doesn't mean you're a bad person either. It just means God may not have done a deeper work or even contacted that person yet. We were all there once, but he's contacted us. He's come to us. He's brought us together. He brought us here. We're here now. We can listen right now. We can pay attention now. We can assimilate things in our mind now. We can convince ourselves now. The gospel, the Bible, this is the word of God for me. It's to whoever will believe, and I do, so this is for me. Now, God holds me responsible. What a word. God holds me responsible and its cousin accountable that having heard the word to choose as wisdom would to live it. Anything else is wrong. Well, see how narrow that sounds? You know why we don't like being narrow? Because we're powering down in this generation. There's a weakness coming into man's mind in this age. The fear of what if is greater than the trusting in the Lord with all your heart as the Bible teaches. And when you hear, trust the Lord with all your heart, there's this kind of a cowering, oh, I don't know about that. As the guy said on the radio the other day, this is the bubble wrap generation. We don't want monkey bars on the playgrounds anymore. We don't want that thing goes round and round that have so much fun on when you're a kid. Somebody might get hurt. Oh, the trampoline. Oh, the trampoline. Oh, let's, let's pray. 
because somebody could get hurt. History is full of instances where people have gotten hurt. They've gotten hurt on monkey bars. They've gotten hurt riding bikes. Get a helmet, knee pads, elbow heads, and, ch- and cover their chest or something. Poor little thing might have a wreck. I'd hate for you all to see some of the wrecks I've had on bike growing up. I remember a man ran out of his house one day on, on uh, Thompson Street, up on Thompson Street in front of Gary Grace's house. And Dr. Marshall was across. He was over here. Me and a guy was playing and went panting and ran at each other and... We're on a just every which direction. Bicycles here and wrapped in, I mean, we were skinned and bleeding, laughing. <laughs> and some poor old soul come out and say, you all right, you all right, you all right. You know, you know. And we said, yeah, we're all right, bleeding all over, wanting to cry, but big boys don't cry. <laughs> Boy, today you can't do that. There's a philosophy, some voice, some way of bringing information to society has made parents, this generation of parents, made them afraid. God may not take care of your children. You know that? Oh, he could. He might. But you know that educated preacher said he might not. And so the fear, what are we going to do? Well, you better get some bubble wrap. They can get it at Walmart. When they get up in the morning, just put some duct tape around them and put it around here and they go outside and they can ride their bike. <laughs> Who taught us like that? When did all of that kind of stuff start? Because in a similar way, there's a spiritual application of the same thing in the church. We're so afraid that it won't work. Our life is in a display now of fear. Paul said it then. He said, God never gave us a spirit of fear. Let me read for you something from one of my favorite commentators, Albert Barnes, one of the old timers, and his commentary is rich and good. And this is something he said. Let me read it. Bear with me. He said, how does the gospel of Christ require us to live? Does it require us to live in a certain way? If we're required to live in a certain way, we have no options. Say amen. Amen. If we are required to do certain things, nothing else can be done as a substitute. Thank you. If we are required by the Heavenly Father, divine requirements, there's no options. The Lord has shown thee, O man, what is good. Remember that? And what does the Lord require of thee? To do justly. Be fair and honest. Love mercy. Care about the hurting and the difficulties of other people. Be a part of their deliverance as God would use you. And what's the third one? And walk humbly with God. That's wisdom. Do you think there's an option to that? And any time you're not living that way, you or me or anybody else, may those words bring conviction. May our heart show us that you're not living right. You know better than that. Your thinking is all wrong. But he said, how does the gospel of Christ require us to live? Number one, he said... 
the message of the gospel is to be applied to all our conduct, to our conversation, the way we talk, our business transactions, our modes of dress. This was 100 years ago. Our modes of dress, our style of living, entertainments, and so forth. There is nothing which we do or say or purpose that is to be accepted from those rules. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus. First Corinthians ten thirteen says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God. If you can't do this to the glory of God, don't do it. If you can't slap your wife to the glory of God, don't slap her. If you cannot throw something at your husband to the glory of God in the name of Jesus, I'm going to throw this at you. Hallelujah. Well, you think, well, you couldn't do that. Well, then wisdom would dictate that you not do it. Or throwing a pillow at, the, at your TV set because your car didn't win the race. The television is wrong. I'm just saying, folks, that there are things that cause us to react that the Bible condemns. If we don't arrest ourselves and change those things, then the war against our soul is one that we're losing. You're losing the war. Another thing he said, secondly, he said there is a way of living which is appropriate to the gospel or which is such as the gospel requires. If all Christians were under the influence of the gospel, there would be something in their dress, temper, conversation, and aims which would distinguish them from others. All of you here in this assembly, whoever listens, whatever, whoever you are, the way you live is who you really are. Your attitude, the way you talk to people, the way you talk down, talk smart, everything about us is an expression of who we are. And while Jesus said, I don't want you to do that, we just deny that. We set that aside because I'm going to say it. If I want to drive 140 miles an hour because I got a new 140 mile an hour road rocket, I'm going to do it. No, the Bible said you should obey. Well, I know it says that, but just, you know, turn your head. I'm just saying there's something about us, folks, that's not ruled by the Lord. If we want to be right with God, any of us, if we want to be right with God, we've got to live right. What if I told you this morning, we're not right with God if we don't live right? And God hasn't given us something that's too hard, something that's out of bounds or that we can't do. He said he would help us and be with us in all of these things. Oh, but it's so hard. As I read once that no dying man has ever spent his last moments regretting living according to the gospel of Christ before he meets him. No man said, oh, I live too holy. I was just too holy in my life. I tried too hard to please God. Now I've got to die. <laughs> Let's pray that when the day comes that you did give God your best. Because I don't think you dread going into eternity if you're living right. I don't think it's an awful thing to meet Jesus and have his favor if you're living right. 
There are no options to God's requirements for us to live. And yet, in this age today, while I'm speaking now, how many people complain? How many, I'm not talking about you, unless it applies to you. I'm just saying generally, as I look at things, people complain so much about the gospel, church, religion, spiritual moments. There's just a complaint. They get together and they say, well, you know, he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Nobody can live like that. Well, why does he teach stuff like that? Well, I don't know. Maybe he thinks he's supposed to because it's in the Bible. But, you know, I read this historical account and I read this great theologian and this great professor. Somebody said that the Sermon on the Mount was not written for this age. It was written for another age. And so, therefore, we don't have to do it. So when you hear somebody teach on it, you can just go back to cleaning your nails or doing your crossword puzzle. It doesn't apply today. And it'll show in your life because whatever God says you shouldn't do, you know, to seek after the Lord with all your heart. Oh, no, we don't have to do that anymore. So you won't. Or you'll heap to yourselves, as the Bible said, in the last days, teachers having itching ears. You don't want to hear the gospel. Be holy. Oh, no, I don't want to. I don't want to be holy. I don't want to have to live that way. I mean... Nobody can. Oh, we should. It's, it's a noble thought and idea. Let's say it. I mean, let's sing the song, holy, holy. Let's sing it. But let's realize that it, it, as long as you're in this fleshly body, folks, there's just a whole lot of what's in the Bible you really can't do. And you can try. That's okay to try. But God knows as long as you're in a human body and a fleshly body of clay, you're incapable of living the way he wants you to live. What do you do about that part that says, be ye therefore perfect? Well, <laughs> are you perfect? Do you know anybody that's perfect? And the English word perfect would mean without flaw, maybe without sin, nothing that could need ever to be corrected or fixed. You know anybody like that? Well, that's not exactly what he's saying. It in might include that in the end. Because he said he will present you faultless before the throne of his grace in the book of Jude. So we talk ourselves out of this demand to live holy. This mandate of the gospel to live beyond what you can associate or put together. Holy living. Perfect life. Be you therefore perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. Or as Paul wrote in Colossians 1, he said, I fuss at everybody I meet. So I can present them all perfect. Sometimes you got to get a man's attention or a woman, you got to make them mad. You got to make them think. My wife hollered at me in a ball game, embarrassed me in front of thousands of people. They all looked at me, oh, that poor preacher. <laughs> but see, it turned out good. Didn't work like that, did it, buddy? But it turned out good. It turned out good. But see, I responded to it. Now, what if you say, well, I don't, I don't, I just don't think that's going to work. How could you accept living holy if what you did last night with each other in some room somewhere was nasty, vulgar, and sinful? No wonder you don't want to hear it. 
Somebody told you that, well, as long as we love each other, we can sleep together. Who told you that? Who told you that? I know of parents who let their sons and their daughters bring a boyfriend or girlfriend in their house together and live together. I know where that happened once. Who told you? What new kind of thinking in the last 30 years has come into the church or come into society where that's okay? That wasn't true in America a number of years ago. It wasn't true when my hair was brown. Then how did it get here? Who told us that we don't have to be what God told us to be? Are we asking too much in the pulpit to you to live like this? Am I, I'll just use it, make it perfect. Am I overwhelming you to tell you that you must obey God? That kind of preaching bothers me. Why? It doesn't bother those people that are committed. Those people that really want to go on with God. It doesn't bother them. Why does it bother you? Maybe they're making application and you're afraid to. There's end time fear. Fear in the world. Fear of losing. Fear of being sued. Fear of being sick. A fear of terrorism, a fear of what? What about the message of faith? Does that bother you? Are we being overwhelmed with the message of faith? I've heard a lot of people said, that's too hard. Why? Why is it too hard to say what Jesus said about how we're supposed to relate to him and trust him with all of our heart and lean not to our own understanding? Why is that hard? Because we're so adjusted and adapted and inclined the way everybody else in society is, we don't want to give it up. We want to be religious, but like everybody else. But that's who you are. That's your manner of life. That's how you're known. And that's how you will be judged. By your works. The Bible says it. You're not going to be judged by your confessions. They open the door to bad things, but... You'll be judged by your works and your deeds. The Bible says specifically, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto. Good works. That men will glorify God as they behold your good works. Your manner of life in practicing the gospel. That's what it is. And so when people begin to question all of this. There's problems. Teaching on the church. Your part that you play in the church as members. From God's side, your obligation to it, your responsibility to it, your commitment to the church. You're a part of it. You belong to it. We function right when you're here with us. We're like a typewriter. If the E and the A isn't here, we can't type. We have a responsibility to be here. I do. And if I have a responsibility to be here, so should you. I don't get a salary. I'm not worried about my paycheck. I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. And I'll tell you what, I enjoy being here. I don't always relish what I'm saying, but I enjoy being here. Because about a third of the time, I'm preaching to me. But the fact of it is, 
the question we have to ask is, are we being too hard? Somebody said, that's too hard. Remember they said that to Jesus in John chapter 6? This is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. They said it to Jesus. Many of his disciples walked away from him and left him. There was another time they said, preaching leaves me sad. I mean, I, this, it leaves me despondent. I'm going to go to some other church. The door's right there. <laughs> if you want to go to another, that door, there's another one out front. It faces south. You can go either direction you want out there. I mean that with all my heart. There is a way we're compelled and committed and mandated to live. And there is no other way. Somebody will give you another way. You might be happy with it now, but not in the end. Woe is me, he said, if I preach not the gospel. Remember that? Woe is me that I'll receive the greater judgment than you will because I'm willing to stand here and say what I'm saying. A man told me that once, said, boy, you'll be judged for what you said because he didn't come back. You know why he didn't come back? He said, I'd hate to be in your shoes. You're going to have to give an account for what you said. Whoa. And I said, you're going to have to give an account for what you've heard. You can see his wheels turn and said, that's right. Because what he heard wasn't what he wanted to hear. He was in a comfortable setting, in a comfortable church in the community, and come with a friend to the meeting, and we knew each other. He was a friend of mine then, and we talked, and he heard me preach once, and oh, man. He just said, I can't handle that. I came back to Shelbyville here in 1981. We had a meeting at the fairgrounds, and it was announced, and a bunch of people came. Pretty good crowd. Maybe a crowd this size came. Oh, wow. And I preached that week. The next week I came, about half of them. And it came down when the Lord finally sent me here. There was 22 of them left. No place to meet, except in a, upstairs. I had to stay in the hallway and look in two rooms. Five of them in here and six of them in here, whatever we had. And that was where we met. There wasn't many people wanting to hear all of this. They like you. You're humorous. You're funny. You say a lot of funny things. I like to hear Brother Todd. Oh, yeah, he's easy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Until he preaches. And then the stuff that comes out of his mouth just makes my hair burn, just singes it. <laughs> Let me see. Isn't there a verse in the Bible that says, And some save with fear. Even something stained by the fire, something in a verse, snatching them out of the fire. What if you don't? What if you leave everybody to think any way they want to and not give them the right way to think? What if you let it alone? What happens? People just do whatever they want to. Act any way they want to. Brother Tom must think it's all right. What if I told you that God wants us to live blameless? Philippians 2.15, be blameless. Oh, nobody can be blameless. Who told you that? Who said that? You know, something that was said up here a while ago in Mr. Barnes's notes about making application of the gospel. And one of the things he mentions was modes of dress. Let me say something about dress. I haven't talked in about dress in a couple weeks or four or five hours anyway. I don't know today that 
men especially. Women are a little better at this than men, a little bit. Women are more conscious, I think, of their appearance than men. I wonder why a Christian man is not concerned about his appearance. Because how you dress tells us about you, doesn't it? I don't mean a man out here, a plumber or a painter or somebody in a ditch or in a closet or in an attic or somebody that's doing some old dirty, sweaty work. I'm not talking about your work moments. I'm talking about more or less when you come to the meeting. Let me say it now so we can make it clear about from now on. I've had times in the past when men were up here in cutoffs. Now, I did not like that. I don't think that's right to come before the Lord looking like that. I don't. Well, I just, you know, I didn't have time to change. Then put you a pair of pants in your car on Wednesday. And put you a nice shirt in there on Wednesday. And maybe a pair of socks. And maybe a pair of shoes. Just put them in the back of your car. You put them, make them, put them in a little sack. Or go buy something at Walmart, save the plastic bag, and put them in the little bag. And put them in the back of your car. Then when you come to church, have it in your heart. Is I'm going to come before the Lord. I want to come before him and be presentable. I don't want to come in here like I've been playing golf all day. I don't want to come in here like I've been in a ditch all day. Or like I've been hanging out drinking coffee all day. This is church. This is when we come before the Lord as a group corporately. Nobody's going to stand at the door and inspect you before you came in. No, you can't do that. You can't do that. You might have just gotten off of work and you didn't have access to these other things and you just came in. I know that. But when you plan, when your plans are you just come to church and you really don't care what you look like. Let me ask you all something. How would you feel? Now don't say a word. Just kind of play like you're on trial and you're just looking straight ahead. How would you feel if I came out here this morning... This would be good. In my tennis shoes and a pair of them little, we used to call them Bermuda shorts. I don't know what they call them today. Shorts, you know. You know what I'm talking about. All right. And my shorts and a T-shirt that I wear around the house. See, I have my home uniform. I have these old pants, this old shirt. That's what I wear around the house. Now, if somebody's coming, I might go change because that's who I am. I represent you. If I came out here like that, I did not shave, I did not comb my gray hair, would you think less of me? Or would you think I'm cool? <laughs> I saw in a video one day, I only saw it for a moment, some preacher, you know, they have the preacher selections there, and I occasionally, once a month, I'll look at one of them for a few seconds, and here's one, and he's bantering around the stage with blue jeans on and his shirt tail out, because today nobody knows how to tuck a shirt within their britches. <laughs> they don't know how to tuck a shirt tail in. They don't know how to do it. So they just let it all hang out. They, you know, shirt tail's out, and he was around. But it was cool. And you turn, they turn the camera out there, they're all cool. And I'm thinking, I wonder what would happen to a priest in the Old Testament. God said, when you come before me, I want you to dress up. I don't mean I want you to wear a million dollar suit. Not even necessarily a tie. 
whatever that is today. But I want you to come before me with a certain kind of this, a certain kind of that, this here, and you got this turban and all these kind of things. I want you to come before me like that. What if he'd walked in there in his cutoffs? Poof. There goes another priest. What happened to him? He's gone. Why would God want us to look like that? And yet, he just complained and complained. You know, I've seen women dress horribly. I've seen men and women dress horribly in church. I've seen it here. Just terribly dressed. See-through blouses. I remember a man telling me once about, I had to turn my head. Every time we stand up, I had to look up. Because of this, there's a visitor. I believe parents are responsible to teach their children how to dress and what is presentable and acceptable and not acceptable. But I'm kind of convinced that a lot of parents can't control their children anymore. Clean that room up. What? What? Clean my room up? What are you talking about? You been under a rock, Mom? What would happen if some of us that are older said that to our mother? <laughs> You're not going to hit your mother back. What? Is there anything wrong with a parent telling a child and training them to live right? Is there anything wrong with a parent telling a child, all right, when you get up in the morning, I want you to clean up your room. I want you to make up your bed, straighten it up. In case the president came to see us today and he walked in here, I want this cleaned up. I want it straightened up. And then I want you to put the dishes away that are in the dishwasher. If we don't have a dishwasher, you dry the ones that are there and then you put them up there. Then I want you to, when you come home, I want you to put your clothes in the washer. I want you to wash them, dry them. And then I want you to fold them, put them back in your there. And then I want you to get the vacuum sweeper every Tuesday and every Friday and vacuum not only your bedroom, but the floor. And Junior, I want you and you clean up your room and you do this and you do that. Any clothes that need to be ironed, you iron them. What is this, communism? <laughs> you know, there are a lot of kids today that would say, right, whatever. And if you, I'm going to wear you out, they might say, and I will call the Child Protective Services and the communist will come then. <laughs> Because it takes a committee to raise a child a day. We become afraid. Playing outside, on the playground, on a trip. This whole world, the whole industry, automotive industry, is all full of fear about accidents and harm and injury. What's wrong with telling a child they have to mind? What's wrong in a restaurant? When children are through eating, they immediately, when they've eaten their food, they immediately get out of their chair and take off running around the restaurant. What's wrong with saying, you sit there. You, uh, <clears throat> you sit there. What's wrong with that? And they're going, I don't want to sit here. Of course you don't. Your parents didn't want to either. <laughs> 
Listen, buddy, when I was a parent, you did right back. So they say, well, your parents were better than mine. I'm just saying something about this, folks. The way we live and the way our families live is a reflection on what we believe. Do you think it's wrong today to make a child mind? Do you think it's wrong to give them responsibilities and hold them to it? No options. Nothing else is work. You do this. You think it's wrong? Give me a bunch of youngsters in that have had to mind, that have been raised to where they had to do what they were told. They had to. They had no options. Set them on the front row. They'll listen. Look here. Y'all got options here? I know some of you don't. You're allowed to breathe. You got freedom. <laughs> yeah. But we care about the way you live. Because you walk out that room, you not only represent Shelbyville Christian Assembly, but you represent your mother and your daddy and everybody that knows you. You represent all of us. All of my children represent me and her. And whatever they do, that's their behavior when it's bad, it's a reflection on us. I guarantee you they think, well, who's her parents? Well, why did they let them? Because we were weak. Well, why did you do that? Because we didn't want to go through the yah-yahs. Why is it that when kids grow up and they're big enough to ask you why? How come? Why do we give into that so easily? I did. Why? Not always, but I did some. Are we afraid that they might grow up bad? They're going to be deranged when they get big and be a freak of nature and sit over in the corner and cower and slobber and, and everybody a poor soul? Are we afraid that they'll never have a boyfriend? Never have a girlfriend? Are we afraid they're just going to be so ousted from society that you know, homeschoolers, oh, we're just robbing their social life? I wish we could. <laughs> I wish we could invade like Jesse James and arrest them. And put them in our jail so they can stay out of some of those places. I'm just saying, folks, as I close, that it's not wrong for us to make people mind and to want people to mind. You train a child up. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, you train a child up the way that child is supposed to go. And when that child is over, they won't depart from it. You ever see a couple Mormon boys walking through town in flip-flops and cutoffs? Seems like they always have a white shirt on and a tie, whatever that is. I don't see many ties today. I got a closet full of them and I'm going to wear them. You're welcome. <laughs> but nothing wrong with it. They got a lot of respect for their religion. They're wrong, but they got a lot of respect for what they believe. More so than most of us Christians. I want my children to be decent. I want my children to have conversational skills. <laughs> oh, I don't even want to get into that. We'll be here too long. Social skills, conversational skills, being able to carry on a half interesting conversation. How are you doing? Instead of hearing them say, oh, no. 
I was playing with my grandson the day when we were doing this. Now, he's beyond this, but I was playing. I said, how are you doing? I don't know. You don't know how you're doing? Well, I'm fine. <laughs> are you sitting over there in that chair? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> are you a white boy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> he, he started answering my questions. You got hair on your head. Just talking to him, he finally got the point. We were just playing. But the point of it is, I would rather that than go through McDonald's. Can I help you? Uh, yeah, I like the desert. Huh? I like to have one iced tea. Half and half. That is all. Instead of getting a sack with two Big Macs and a Coke and a bag of fries on the other end, I just want one iced tea. Or somebody who can say thank you. Or you say to a kid, how are you doing today? How's school going? Fine, thank you. Thanks for asking. Isn't that an easy answer? Isn't this what parents teach? Should we not be responsible as our children represent us that we put into them as much decency and order that we can? I mean, God wants us to, doesn't he? Train a child. Train a child up doesn't necessarily mean about knowing the Bible. Train them up to be nice and gentle and kind and not fight and argue and quit scuffling and picking on each other. We don't do that. Say thank you. Say uh, no, ma'am, or yes. Just respond with some kind of respect and courtesy. It's not wrong to be nice and gentle and meek and kind and courteous. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to be able to say thank you. It's not wrong to hold a door for an elder to go through. It's not wrong if a kid, if two of us are talking and a kid walks by us or between us for the kid to say, excuse me. Nothing wrong with that, is there? Instead of you wanting to kick them when I say, oh, a poor one. <laughs> <You know. laughs> That's what we train people to do. I think the highlight of my mother's life with me was when somebody in the community would comment to her how nice I was because I was polite or I would say thank you or yes ma'am or no ma'am. I have to admit, and I'll just say this because I'm not tooting my horn, I'm just saying maybe I am, but I just want to say this. One of the things my mother drilled into me was to be polite and nice and give a right answer. And if I was in somebody's house and they were eating, you leave. And I've been in houses eating and people look over your shoulder and watch you put that in your mouth. You want anything to eat? No, I just want to watch you. How rude is that? Well, let me close with this. Turn to Deuteronomy 4 so I can close. We've been here long enough. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9. I think God holds me responsible I do, I believe this, on your behalf to preach the word. I do. I believe I am responsible this morning as I stand here, as long as I stand here, to preach the gospel. Whether in season or out of season. That I am accountable to reprove and rebuke and exhort 
with all long-suffering. I believe that's my call. And if I don't do that, I'm failing you. I call your attention to your weaknesses and your failures. Not that I don't have any, but I call all of our attention to the fact that there's this element in society that's affecting all of us, and we're bending to it. There's a war against our soul. We're losing. Get back. Know what you believe and quit bending to what everybody wants. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 9. I'll leave you with this. And take heed to yourself. This is you personal. Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul, which is the wars against, keep thy soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, but teach them to your sons and to your sons' sons. That's our responsibility, to make citizens for the kingdom of God, known by how they live. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, with thanksgiving, we ask that your blessing would be upon the words that we have heard, that every word would find a, a rooting place in every heart, that no word would be left unheeded or rejected or set aside. but that we as serious-minded people will let our convictions wrap themselves around your word and let your word rule our lives. That we be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.